BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It shattered everybody's world. When my mom found out, she just went ballistic because that was her baby sister. Her baby sister was her maid of honor at her wedding. All I can remember was these blue gloves and gauze and stuff everywhere. I was surprised they didn't even clean up the place, you know, and you could still see, you know, some stains. You'd think the rain would wash that away. I looked for Long Island News. I wanted to see for myself, and I wanted to see who was my aunt's killer. And I remember looking at him, and I'm like, this is the guy who took my aunt's life away. And I just couldn't believe it. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How you doing today, Lex? Oh, I am feeling good. We're feeling good. If you are looking right before you press play on this podcast, you know that it is part one of a two-part series. And if you've been listening to The First Degree, you know how that's going to go. If you are a member of our Patreon, The Firsty Underground, you're going to get parts one and parts two right now. If you're not, if you're just listening on the normal feed, you're going to listen to part two next week. And if that's okay for you, then that's great. But if you want to listen to both parts, binge them right now, then come join us on our Patreon. And honestly, before our Patreon, it was like olden times. (laughs) We didn't used to have the ability to get them at the same time. So you're not, this is not to make you feel bad, but we are in modern times with the Patreon and it is better. You know, no one likes delayed gratification. No, I mean, we're in a binge culture. So if you want to binge, and this is a fascinating, fascinating episode. uh, Yeah, join us over there. And also we have one true crime bonus episode every single week for a month, full length, fully researched episodes over there. So if you're looking for more true crime content, of course, in addition to listening to this multi-parter right away, then join us. That's right. Patreon is the place to be. So join us over there. One more piece of housekeeping before we get going. I want to give a special shout out to one of our talented writers, Andrea Marshbank. You've probably heard her name in the credits. She does amazing work for us. And we appreciate you so much, Andrea. And I'm bringing this up because Andrea is so good at this that she's created a program to train others who want to become true crime 
researchers, and writers. And her company is called True Crime Podcast Training. And she actually started it with Haley Gray, another talented writer we've worked with closely for a really long time. And their course will basically prepare you to become a podcast writer and researcher with 100% online coursework taught by Haley and Andrea. And Andrea happens to be a former English teacher. So no better person to do this. Congrats, ladies. Proud of you both. And for those of you listening, you can learn more at truecrimepodcasttraining.com. It's such a cool profession to get into. So anybody out there, like if you're thinking about what is your first step, this is your first step. It really is. And these ladies are really good at this. And this profession didn't really exist a few years ago. No. And they've really kind of hammered out the basics from the foundation up. So if you're intimidated by how to start, I have no one better to recommend than these two ladies. Amazing. Congrats, girls. We're very proud of you. Very proud. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Serial killers. If you're an avid listener of this podcast, you're familiar with at least one of them. If you pay attention to the news, you probably know the names of a few of them. And if you're a true crime buff, well, then yeah, you probably know just about all of them. Speaking for myself for a second, every time I learn about a new serial killer, I hope it's going to be the last one, but it never is. There's always another man who is driven to do this. There are always more men out there killing taking lives, and typically they're taking the lives of women, although not always. Today's story focuses on the lives stolen by a particularly pathetic serial killer, one that almost got away with it. Very much like the newly arrested Long Island serial killer suspect, Rex Uerman, who evaded law enforcement for more than 12 years. And much like another notorious Long Island serial killer named Joel Rifkin, who was only arrested because he was pulled over with the remains of one of his victims in his pickup truck. To make things even more terrifying, the timelines of these disgusting, soulless killers intersect and overlap at many points. It's unnerving when you think about it. Multiple serial killers hunting women on an island only 23 miles wide by 120 miles long at the same time. This is just a friendly reminder that for every captured serial killer, there are many who aren't. And for every victim who's gotten justice, there are even more who haven't. Today's case takes us back to November 3rd of 1993. In international news, thieves successfully stole $52 million of art from Sweden's Museum of Modern Art, and some of the missing paintings and sculptures have never been recovered. And in pop culture, the first ever episode of Fran Drescher's The Nanny aired on CBS. And at this time, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, which had been released the month before in October, held strong in number two in the box office. Such a classic movie. And while Disney's The Three Musketeers, starring Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, and Oliver Platt was number one at the box office. And meanwhile, Meatloaf's song, I'd Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, topped the song charts for the entire month of October. Weird time for music. But also a great time. I know. I mean, whenever I hear that song, I still can't believe it's Meatloaf. (laughs) It's insane. So the setting for today's case is Long Island's Suffolk County. And if you've been listening to this podcast recently, Suffolk County might sound familiar to you. First of all, it's where I grew up, and it's also where the recently caught Long Island serial killer Rex Huerman resided, terrorized, and allegedly hid the bodies of his victims known as the Gilgo Four. And 
Like I said, if you've been listening, you know that we did a series on the Long Island serial killer right in the midst of his capture. So that could be why you know what Suffolk County is. His victims were Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, Amberlynn Costello, and Maureen Brainerd Barnes. And if you need to get caught up in that case, don't worry. Go back and listen to those episodes I just mentioned. Scroll through our feed and find five full-length episodes covering Lesk in depth and a whole bunch of bonus episodes dedicated to each of the victims' lives. But as far as Suffolk County itself goes, here's what you need to know. It's a relatively big open area. Suffolk County covers 2,300 square miles of Long Island. But even though Suffolk County is relatively large in the sense that it encompasses most of the island itself, its population's relatively low. Despite covering 66% of Long Island, Suffolk County is home to only 20% of the people who live there. Meaning, Suffolk County has a lot of isolated areas, including beaches, forests, and grasslands, which in my opinion are the best and most aesthetically scenic parts of the island. But it also made it the perfect dumping ground for serial killers over the years. So our first degree for today's case is named Teresa, and Teresa's aunt, Rita Tangretti, was born and raised in Suffolk County. Rita grew up primarily in the Bay Shore, which is a small hamlet in Islip, New York. And Rita was the youngest out of six siblings. I believe there were six kids in the family. And my Aunt Rita was the baby. We see there was Uncle Tommy, my Aunt Patty, my Uncle Mark. Then it was my mom. My mom was the fourth child. Then it was my Uncle Salvatore. And then it was my Aunt Rita. Six kids is a lot. And you can bet that... Rita's childhood was probably a madhouse in kind of an amazing way. Everyone running around like crazy, but also loving each other like crazy also. And ever since Rita was a little girl, she was a spitfire. She loved sports and was an avid kickball and soccer player. That's right. And one Christmas, Rita's older brother received a unicycle as a gift. And seven-year-old Rita stole the show by learning how to ride it like immediately, which is so impressive. And Teresa's mom and Rita's sister, Diana, told Newsday, Rita was riding it. She was amazing. She was fearless. Throughout Rita's life, she would be known as a skilled athlete who was always moving. And Teresa herself even remembered how her Aunt Rita loved to dance. Oh, my gosh. I remember my aunt dancing a lot. My mom would always play music at the house. She loved to dance. She's Hispanic descent, and so am I. So it was my mom. I just remember her dancing a lot. My aunt was a very smart woman, very lovable, very friendly, very vibrant, outgoing. That's the personality she had. And she might have been this little short little Puerto Rican girl, but she'd open up a can of whip ass if she needed to. She was feisty, but very loving. Rita definitely gravitated towards a spotlight. And you can tell that she just had that special magnetic kind of personality. In 1978, Rita was Teresa's mom Diana's maid of honor during her wedding. And according to Diana, Rita wore a gorgeous rust-colored dress. And in an interview with Newsday, Diana joked how she, as the bride, was supposed to be the prettiest woman on her wedding day. But her sister Rita had unintentionally outshined everyone with her beauty. In the early 1980s, Rita gave birth to her first son, Anthony. And a few years later, Rita would marry a man named Francis Beinlich, and he went by Frankie. Together, Rita and Frankie had two more kids, a son named Frankie Jr. and a daughter named Amanda. 
And of course, our first degree Teresa remembers her uncle Frankie and her three little cousins really, really well, which makes sense. They were a very integral part of her childhood, you know, core memories and all that. My Aunt Rita's oldest son is Anthony Tengretti. And then she had a daughter, Amanda Beinlich, but she had passed away on Anthony's 40th birthday last year from a drug overdose. And then there's Frankie Beinlich, and he's in Riverhead somewhere, Riverhead Jail. I just remember playing with her kids a lot. We'd always play hide-and-seek. We always would play red light, green light. My cousin Anthony, he is five years younger than me. So I'm very close to my cousin Anthony. Very, very close. Rita was an amazing aunt to Teresa, and she was a truly stellar mom to her three kids. My Aunt Rita was a very, very good mom. Always took care of her kids. I remember the clothes that they wore. Their clothes were, like, just as good as ours. My dad, at that time, he worked hard. And we might have lived in a rundown neighborhood, but we were like, we had money. And my aunt was the same. She always had her kids, you know, with the best of whatever she could get and whatever her husband at the time could afford. And Teresa loved her uncle Frankie, too. Years later, when Teresa happened to run into her uncle at a burger joint, she made sure to say hi. After all, he was a big part of her life. And no matter what happened, Teresa would always consider him family. I loved her husband. I just remember him being this shabby guy, and he would always smile. And believe it or not, the last time I saw him, I was visiting Long Island in my early 20s. And I saw him at this Roy Rogers in Suffolk County, the only Roy Rogers that they have. I remember looking at Frank Beinlich, and I was like, oh, my God, Uncle Frankie, that's how I am. You know, that's how I was raised. You know, if you're going to be with them for a long time, you get either aunt or uncle. Around 1993, when Teresa was 14 years old, she spoke to her Aunt Rita for the last time. But, of course, Teresa had no way of knowing that this was the last time that she'd talked to her Aunt Rita. Teresa just thought that she'd be hopping on a call with her grandma. And since her Aunt Rita was nearby, Teresa just wanted to say hi to her as well. I called up my grandma, Helen, and I thought I heard my Aunt Rita in the background. And I talked to my Aunt Rita very briefly, and she was very quiet at the time. And I knew something was not right. You know, I felt it. I was like, what's going on? She was very, very quiet. She was like one or two words talking to me. I remember, you know, telling her that I loved her, and she says, I love you too, sweetie. That's the last that I remember her telling me. Life continued as normal for Teresa for about two weeks. She went to school, she came home, she did her homework, the usual stuff. Until one day, Teresa received some horrific news. Not only that her Aunt Rita was dead, but also that her body had been found. I was living with my dad's mother, my grandma Phyllis. It was just her and I. And I was coming home from school one day and she's like, something bad happened to your Aunt Rita. And I was like, okay. She's like, I think you should really talk to your grandma Helen. So I called up my grandma Helen and that's when she told me the news about my Aunt Rita. She said they, they found her in the woods and patch 
and and how she was found. Well, not totally, you know, totally, you know, in detail, because I was still young. What had happened to 31-year-old Rita Tangretti? Sadly, I think you all know where this is going. And unfortunately, it would take way too long for a family to get the answers they deserved. Let's go back. Rita Marie Tangretti was born on July 7th of 1962 in Copeg, Suffolk County. From a very young age, Rita was known for her strength and her fierce independence. So for example, after Rita finished eighth grade at Brentwood Junior High, she decided that school was just not doing enough for her. So she dropped out. And according to Rita's sister, Diana, Rita was out doing what she wanted to do, just like Rita always did. But being so independent at such a young age can be challenging. Hell, there are plenty of studies that show that staying in school helps kids avoid hardships like drug addiction. And though we aren't sure where and when Rita began struggling with addiction, we know that eventually she did. And no matter how hard Rita tried to kick this habit, she couldn't seem to quit. In our first degrees, mom Diana told Newsday, there were quite a lot of interventions. Everyone tried to help her. It's a very difficult thing. My aunt just chose, you know, to go down the wrong path. Everybody makes mistakes. It was just wrong choices. The drugs had taken over. In May of 1983, 21-year-old Rita just happened to do an interview with journalist Paul Vitello from Newsday. Vitello was writing an article called The Trouble Spot, which discussed the crime in a suburban Long Island neighborhood. Rita, who was a young mother that lived alone in an apartment, told Vitello that her home was robbed the year before. But she couldn't go to police for help since she had a warrant out for her arrest. Rita explained that she was wanted for petty larceny because she used to steal a lot. By 1989, Rita's drug addiction had caused her to lose touch with some members of her family, including her sister, Diana. And there are some facts about drug addiction I just want to remind you about. You know, drug addiction is a disease, and people addicted to substances are oftentimes self-medicating for various reasons. And drugs can exacerbate underlying mental health issues. And just like what happened with Rita, drug addiction can very much alienate you from your loved ones. If you're catching my drift... Drug addiction can make you much more vulnerable to people with insidious intentions as well. And drug addiction can also drive you to desperation. And Rita's drug addiction forced her into sex work. But even though Rita didn't see as much of her family while she was struggling, they still loved her unconditionally. They just weren't sure how to help Rita and end her drug addiction or help her get out of sex work. Which is why when the news of Rita's unexpected death broke, her family was obviously absolutely devastated. It's shattered everybody's world. When my mom found out, she just went ballistic because that was her baby sister. Her baby sister was her maid of honor at her wedding. They were very, very close. I could still picture that day when my mom came over and, and we had to tell her. And I remember holding on to my mom. I cannot imagine what this experience was like for Diana, and Teresa must have been going through it as well. It's so much for anybody to process, let alone a little 14-year-old girl. And when Teresa and some of her family went to Suffolk County to see the location where Rita's body had been discovered, it must have felt surreal. They actually took me there to the place where they found her, and it was really, really hard on me and my Aunt Rita's sister, Patty. And my grandma, Helen, all I can remember was these blue gloves and gauze and stuff everywhere. That's how bad it was. 
you know, I was surprised they didn't even clean up the place, you know, and you could still see some stains. I mean, even after months, you know, you'd think the rain would wash that away. The Tangretis obviously didn't take Rita's kids to the crime scene. According to Teresa, they told Rita's young son, Anthony, who was around nine at the time, that his mom had fallen on a rock and gone to heaven. Because the truth felt impossible. And the truth is impossible in this case, especially to tell a child. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to Allo Moves and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. 
Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. In 1993, Rita Tangretti was 31 years old and still battling her drug addiction. And as far as what else was happening on Long Island in 1993, according to a Newsday article, crime on Long Island was allegedly down. Here's a direct quote. With the exception of robbery, violent crime decreased from 91 to 92. However, this article went on to say that these statistics were released because public perception of crime increased on Long Island due to high-profile cases of the time. We're talking Amy Fisher, Joey Buttafuoco, Joel Rifkin, and Katie Beers. And for the record, we've covered Joel Rifkin on this podcast and Katie Beers. So if you want to learn about those cases, you can find episodes on those. Yep. So at the time of this reporting, people were well aware of serial killer Joel Rifkin. I mean, he was a terrorizing dude. He was a monster who killed as many as 17 sex workers. But the other serial killers who were active on Long Island at this time had yet to be discovered. And I wonder if the messaging within this article would be different if law enforcement had already known about the others, because they didn't. Maybe it would be the same, since victims were sex workers. Maybe they wouldn't have cared. Or maybe articles like this were circulated to calm an already terrified public on the heels of Joel Rifkin's arrest. Maybe it's a combination of all these variables. We're going to shift back to Rita. And at the time this unfolded, Rita's exact address was unknown. However, police reports suggest that Rita met her clients in East Patchog. So Patchog is located on the south shore of the island. And if you were looking at it on a map, it's almost in the middle of the island, only a little more east. And in order to meet clients, Rita would hitchhike up and down Montauk Highway. This area of East Patchog was particularly well known for being a hot spot for sex work. And Rita did this out of desperation, and she was in an extremely vulnerable position. So oddly enough, this part of East Patchog was also popular among the ATV and off-roading community, which now that you think about it, isn't all that odd. Like we mentioned, Suffolk County has swaths of unpopulated woods where you could drive a four-wheeler to your heart's content without bothering anyone. Stretches and stretches of woods that seem to lead nowhere. So shortly after noon, on Tuesday, November 3rd of 1993, a person driving their ATV happened to find Rita's body. She was half buried in a wooded area near a housing development on Esplanade Drive. Rita had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and murdered, and her killer had deliberately positioned her. And they'd also removed Rita's underwear and one of her shoes. And while no bones in Rita's face were broken, her skull had been almost split into two. According to Suffolk County's chief medical examiner, Rita looked like she'd been in a high-speed car crash or fallen from a great height. But neither of those things happened. This had been done by the hands of a psychopath. Ultimately, Rita's cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head and strangulation. And medical experts believe that Rita had only been dead for a short period of time, probably less than two days. There were blood spatters on the trees near Rita's body, and some of her brain matter was found nearby. So the investigators thought Rita was probably killed near where she had been found. Local newspapers reported on several characteristics of the crime scene. There was a glaring one. Apparently, a bunch of wood chips had been found all over around Rita's body. 
Toxicology tests were conducted and it indicated that both cocaine and alcohol were in Rita's system. And we know that Rita struggled with addiction, so this really isn't a surprise. But according to the reporting, the alcohol had not been digested in her stomach. So this means that Rita had probably had a drink almost immediately before she was killed. Right. And while we're on the subject of the newspaper reports, the reporting on Rita's case was disgusting. And frankly, the journalists should be embarrassed. One headline from the Daily News read, Hooker found slain. I mean, this mother, sister, friend has been brutally murdered. This is unacceptable. It's disgusting. Yet we see it constantly still. This isn't just happening in the 90s. This is still happening now. Referring to homicide victims as hookers, prostitutes, escorts, it's vile. Boiling them down to that one thing they did at one time. Not to mention that like pretty much every single woman that goes into sex work is doing it out of desperation and just trying to survive. Like, so then to demean them down to this one thing that nobody is trying to do in the first place, you know? A hundred percent. And at least in the nineties, nobody was talking about ethics related to this kind of reporting and to true crime, but people are talking about it now and yet it's still happening. People are so, still doing it. Ugh. Yeah. Everybody do better. So Rita's murder had an earth-shattering impact. Her family, her friends, everybody who knew her was gutted. And on the heels of Joel Rifkin's capture, it certainly created some even more unease. And there were a lot of questions. Was there yet another serial killer targeting sex workers on the loose on Long Island? Or was this just a one-off? And it wouldn't take that long to get an answer. On January 30th of 1994, the police received an anonymous call regarding another woman's nude body 200 feet off the eastbound service road of the Long Island Expressway in North Shirley. So, for context, Shirley is just slightly east of Patchogue, which is where Rita Cingretti's body was found. And after the report of the discovered remains was made, it was Detective William Rathjen who responded to the call. And as he walked through the dense woods, he saw some things out of place. First, he saw discarded clothing, a blue jacket, socks, a sneaker, and some pants. And then he came upon the body of the young woman. It turns out that the parents of 21-year-old Colleen McNamee had reported her missing on January 6th, and they had seen her only the day before on the 5th. And they knew that something was wrong immediately when they couldn't reach her the next day and she never came home. She wasn't somebody that nobody cared about. She was somebody who was consistent in the lives of those who loved her. And after the discovery of this woman's body in the woods, sadly, fingerprint analysis would conclusively identify her as Colleen. There was no denying it. Right away, the similarities between Colleen and Rita's deaths were undeniable. Colleen's body was discovered off the side of a road in a tree-filled area, just like Rita. And Colleen was missing her underwear and one shoe. One shoe is so specific, just like Rita. And Colleen's body had been posed, very similar to how Rita's was. And her cause of death was exactly the same. Blunt force trauma to the head and strangulation. She'd also been raped. And the list of commonalities just kept going. A portion of Colleen's brain matter was missing, just like Rita's. She had cocaine in her bloodstream, just like Rita's. And according to Newsday, there were wood chips near Colleen's body, just like Rita's. And Colleen was a five-foot-tall, small-statured sex worker, just like Rita. And when looking at the cases, there were only a few differences between the two women. Colleen had red marks all over one of her legs, and she had possible cigarette burns on her right hand. And where both of Rita's hands were positioned above her head, 
only Colleen's right hand was above her head. And Colleen's left hand clutched a sweatshirt near her face. And there were no blood spatters near Colleen's body, which suggested that she'd been killed elsewhere and possibly moved to this location. And the fact that Colleen's missing brain matter wasn't at the crime scene also supported that same theory. And while Rita's skull only had one linear fracture practically straight down the middle and none of the bones in Rita's face were broken, Colleen's skull had been crushed like an eggshell and almost every bone in her face was broken. Only her jaw and her nose bones remained intact. Beyond that, the two women's bodies were discovered only nine miles apart and the police were certain that the same killer was responsible for both murders. The fear at this point, of course, is that the police had another Joel Rifkin on their hands. His reign of terror had only just ended this same year. The prospect of yet another serial killer hunting women on this tiny island was a horrifying one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French. And it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten. And I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Colleen Tara McNamee was born on September 4th of 1973 in Bayshore, Suffolk County, New York. And funnily enough, Rita probably spent some years in Bayshore as well. Colleen had at least three siblings, including two brothers, and she grew up in various cities on Long Island. In 1991, Colleen graduated from Sachem High School in Lake Ronkonkoma. And her principal, Dennis James, told Newsday that she was a studious girl who was straightforward but very nice. Her former principal also told the paper that Sachem High School offered counseling to students following the news of Colleen's murder. After all, Colleen was only 20 years old when she was killed. And depending on when her birthday was, she may have only been a year or two out of high school. Many students who were there still likely knew Colleen, and this news obviously was devastating. And it seemed as though nobody had a single bad thing to say about Colleen. However, even if she was the worst person in the world, this shit shouldn't happen to anybody. Yeah. (laughs) 
But according to a 2014 Newsday article, Colleen was also known as a bubbly peacemaker at Sachem High School, and she always dressed impeccably. And she could be heard in hallways imploring friends in a squeaky voice to stop fighting or to stop sleeping in class. And she always had her friends' backs. And the Daily News, as disgusting as some of their headlines were, I mean, they spoke to a neighbor of the McNamee neighborhood, and what this neighbor said was heartbreaking. They described Colleen as very nice and very friendly, who always stopped to say hello. The neighbor then said, I haven't spoken to any of the family yet because I don't know what to say. We're all in shock. Because what the fuck do you say to someone whose young daughter has been killed under these circumstances? I mean, I wouldn't know what to say either. And the neighbor also confirmed that Colleen and her family had lived in this subdivision since it was built 28 years prior. And those who knew Colleen said that she was pretty and outgoing, and that through a series of unfortunate events, like so many, she developed a drug addiction. According to Colleen's parents, she was in and out of several drug treatment programs. But drug addiction is incredibly challenging, and Colleen wasn't free of its grasp just yet. And Colleen's diagnosed manic depressive disorder didn't help either. And we're going to drive this point home yet again. Mental illness combined with a drug addiction can leave somebody extremely vulnerable, which was the case with Colleen and, of course, was the case with Rita. And Colleen was the second woman to be murdered in this area within a small span of time, and the media clung to this. Rumors circulated, one of which was that these murders were ritualistic in nature. And you have to remember, this is the early 90s, and the hysteria surrounding the satanic panic was still kind of looming in the air at this point in time. However, by February of 1994, about a month after Colleen was reported missing, Suffolk County police ruled out the possibility that there was a ritualistic component to these crimes, because there usually isn't. And however, the theories would keep on coming and the rumor mill would keep on churning. Right. And then the disgusting newspaper headlines continued. We've got the Daily News, February 4th, 94. Slain woman had rap hooking charge. You get the point. I don't need to read a ton more, but this is what people are dealing with. And imagine being the families of these murder victims at this time. I mean, it's just adding insult to injury, twisting the knife, just horrible to have to deal with. Colleen lived in Holbrook with her family at the time of her death, and she was working at a sandwich shop and as a sex worker when she needed to. And on January 5th, 25 days before her body was found, Colleen left her Holbrook home for an outpatient drug rehab program at the South Shore Treatment Center. And the hope was maybe this time Colleen would be able to get the help she needed. Colleen's dad told Newsday and said that he was just distraught at that Colleen's murder had taken them by total surprise. I mean, last they saw her, she was going off to rehab, and this is the next they knew. And sadly, we'll never know for sure, because at 10 a.m. that day, Colleen left the South Shore Treatment Center. She hopped into a small blue car with another rehab outpatient, and together they drove east on Veterans Memorial Highway. And that was the last that anybody ever saw Colleen. Like we told you, Colleen's parents reported her missing right away as soon as they knew Colleen had left rehab. But there was little headway in the police investigation until the anonymous phone call that led authorities to her body came on January 30th. Lawrence and Charlotte McNamee of Holbrook have been left heartbroken by the murder of their 20-year-old daughter Colleen in January 1994. Any unsolved case is extremely frustrating. Police can't crack the murder of Colleen McNamee, whose body was found off the LIE near the William Floyd Parkway. 
And they've run into a brick wall with the murder of 31-year-old Rita Tangretti of East Patchogue. She was discovered dead two months earlier in an abandoned housing development in East Patchogue. We believe that these two cases are tied together. To ensure the integrity of the case, police will only say the killings appear to be sexually motivated. The two women engaged in prostitution and were known to each other. Colleen McNamee's parents say their daughter was a 1991 graduate of Sachem High School and worked in a series of retail jobs before falling victim to drugs. But she did seek treatment, and the last time anybody saw her was the day she left an Islandia drug rehab center with another patient. Colleen's mother remembers their last visit together. The last time I saw my daughter, life was going in the right direction for her. She was vibrant, she looked beautiful, she dressed lovely. She was so happy, she had plans for the evening. And I figured we're finally on the way. When the police updated the public during the press conferences, they said that they were steadfast in their commitment to solve the case. These cases are now a little more than two years old, but police say that could still work in their favor to solve the murders. And someone who may have had information thinking, oh, that case has already been solved, I don't need to come forward, maybe now this will be the impetus, or this will provide the impetus for them to come forward and, uh, and give us the information. We want to do whatever we can to uh, bring this to a conclusion. Even though the situation was sickening and awful, Colleen's family was not alone in their grief. Rita's family was rocked by Colleen's murder as well. Losing Rita was horrific enough, but the prospect that there was somebody out there who might continue to take lives was unfathomable. But even if there was a serial killer, surely they would catch him soon. If there's any case that deserves the police's full attention and all of the resources available, it's this one, right? You would think. But guess what? Years and years passed without a break in either case. And here's Teresa. I thought it was going to be, oh, they're going to catch this person, whoever did it, man or woman. And I said, oh, Grandma, they're going to catch him. They're going to catch him. She's like, well, they should have catched him already, you know, after a couple of days. Years went by, and I was always thinking in the back of my mind, you know, when. And then I gave up hope after about 10 years. So I think it was like, I want to say when I was like 23, 24, yeah, I think that's when I was giving up hope. I went to go visit my grandma, Helen, Rita's mother again, and she says, have you even heard anything? And she said, no, I haven't. The investigation of Rita and Colleen's murders is a topic of much debate. On the one hand, the authorities allegedly investigated 152 men in pursuit of their killer. Since law enforcement was pretty sure that Rita and Colleen's murders had been sexually motivated, they took DNA from multiple semen samples on and near their bodies, and they tried to match that DNA to 152 men. As in, if the same DNA was on both women's bodies and also matched one of these men, there you go, that's the killer. But for a long time, that didn't pan out. And later, some criticized the police for this line of investigation. Rita and Colleen were sex workers, so there was going to be trace amounts of DNA on their bodies. But what if their killer had used a condom? Or what if he cleaned up any biological evidence that he may have left? If that was the case, one of those 152 men might have gotten away with two heinous murders. Surely there had to be other avenues that they could investigate. Right. And I'm also saying, if they're sex workers, maybe there's evidence on their bodies that aren't related to the murder. 
You know, this goes both ways. It just seems like a really non-efficient way to conduct this investigation. However, it was the 90s, so I shouldn't judge too harshly, but whatever. Anyways, here's where this case starts to take on a disturbingly familiar form. And I say this especially to those of you listening who are familiar with how the investigation into the Long Island serial killer unfolded. And it basically went awry for over a decade because of police corruption and negligence. So much so that there were rumors and speculation that the former chief of police, James Burke, could even maybe be a suspect and be responsible for one of the victims. So you're about to understand exactly why I'm bringing this up right now. And I want to remind you that the police department in charge of the Long Island serial killer case is the exact same police department charged with solving Rita and Colleen's murders, the Suffolk County Police Department. So about five years after Rita and Colleen were murdered in 1998, a sergeant named Michael S. Murphy of the Suffolk County Police Department was secretly looked at as a suspect. Fun fact, Michael Murphy was the son of then chief of detectives at the Suffolk County Police Department, and his name, Thomas Murphy. If you're recoiling in disgust, brace yourselves further, because Michael Murphy wasn't even the only law enforcement officer from Suffolk County PD who was looked at for these slayings. So five years after the murders, the saga of the case was far from over, demonstrating another stranger-than-fiction series of events that delayed justice for at least two women far longer than necessary. We're talking police corruption, false confessions, prosecutorial misconduct, and the emergence of at least one additional serial killer operating on Long Island. You know what this means, friends. This, like Jack said in the beginning, is going to be a two-parter. There's just far too much important information to cram into this one episode. But trust me, with this case, it'll be worth it. For now, we're going to leave you with some gnawing questions. Just how many serial killers were at large during the 1990s? How many on this tiny island, spanning just 110 miles by 23? How many Rex Hewermans, Joel Rifkins, and Manorville Butchers are there out there? When will they be stopped? When will new ones stop appearing? All good questions. We'll see you next week. Well, huge thank you to Teresa for being our first degree guest for this episode. She'll obviously be with us next week as well. Um, until then, if you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello, the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. If you want some more bonus content or you want to listen to part two right now and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.